All right. Um, just before we begin, uh, I see as as Elsa. Sorry about Ezra. Elsa. Elsa. <laughs> sorry. This is the second time. Um, a lot of new faces. Uh, if you are new here, welcome. Uh, it's awesome to have you here. I know I say this every week, but it's it's always better to worship with more people. So if you are new here, welcome. Uh, stick around. We've got snacks after. We'd love to have a chat and get to know you all a bit better. A um, few things before I go into the Bible reading. Um, huge thank you to the events team for yesterday. Yesterday was phenomenal. Um, also, a huge thank you to the female volunteers. Uh, I was genuinely moved by your heart of service. Like You guys were like next level, and you've really set the, the bar for the men when we run the women's conference as well. So men, sign up if you haven't signed up already. Um, and just following on from the announcements, um, we had a VT meeting on Friday night, and one of the agenda items that was raised is that we want to have a massive recruitment push in Q4 of this year or towards Q4 of this year. Uh, we're looking to recruit a lot, like a lot for the welcoming team and for the kids ministry in particular. Um, I know a lot of you guys serve in other departments already and uh, might not, might be a bit time poor to be able to serve in other areas. Um, what an awesome problem to have that we've got so many people serving in. It's a good problem. Like, it really is. Um, but with the kids' ministry in particular, uh, one of my hopes is that we have a massive recruitment drive, and I'm just going to share my ambition. I, I want us to get around 12 people. And that might sound like a lot, but the reason I want so many is so that the burden of serving won't be as heavy. So if we have about 12 people, we'll only need three people serving on any given Sunday, which means that you can you only really have to serve like two or three months out of a year, uh, which isn't too bad if you think about it. So have a think about it, pray about it. Uh, we'd love to see you get on board. And for all you single people, uh, what better way to meet your future partner than in a kids ministry? Like, like if you're going to meet the future father or mother of your children, why not meet them in a ministry where you take care of kids? Anyways. Um, today's Bible reading, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. Uh, today's sermon's going to be a little bit shorter, um, in the hopes that my voice lasts throughout the entire sermon. So Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. The Word of God reads, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, I pray that you would preserve my voice at least until the end of this sermon. Uh, Lord, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, we see a second time that Jesus miraculously feeds thousands of people. Uh, And Lord, whilst there is nothing wrong with receiving the same message uh, for what is a similar event that we saw only a few chapters ago, Lord, help us to understand the significance of why Mark recorded this particular account. That despite Jesus feeding 5,000 only two chapters ago, why he records this event of Jesus feeding 4,000 this time around. Uh, So Lord, help us to understand the significance of this, your intention for this word being preserved in Mark's gospel, and your voice, Lord. We want to hear your voice so that we can come away having encountered you. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, to give a recap, uh, Jesus has spent the last few days in a Gentile region, uh, beginning in Tyre and Sidon, where he encountered that Syrophoenician woman who was of Gentile, she was a Gentile, but she was of Canaanite rather ancestry, and Canaanites traditionally were the enemy of Israel. And she came to him, wanting him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And after fulfilling her request, Jesus then continued traveling on. He goes full circle around the Sea of Galilee, and he ends up in a region called Decapolis. And I mentioned that, you know, the prefix dec is 10, and Decapolis literally meant like a 10-city region. So it was a region, it wasn't one city, it was a region that encompassed 10 separate cities, Gentile cities, so non-Jewish. And it's in this region last week that we saw Jesus heal a deaf and mute man using a very gross, unconventional method, sticks his fingers in his ear, licks his finger and touches the guy's tongue, still, I don't know why he did that, but he he did it nonetheless, and he healed the man. And the result was that the Gentiles, who in this Decapolis region, who had access to a pantheon of gods and goddesses, like endless an endless number of idols. The, the result was that when they saw Jesus perform this miracle, we saw that they glorified God. And not just any God, but the God of Israel. Now, today's passage where Jesus feeds the 4,000, like I mentioned in my prayer, might sound a bit familiar because only two chapters earlier, we see that Jesus fed 5,000. Now, there's some theologians that, like, that believe that there was a mix-up and there was only one miracle um, and that you know the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark got it wrong or he got his details wrong or adding like combining all the details. He forgot that he had already mentioned it uh, two chapters earlier and he just mentioned it again by accident. Um, some people believe that someone edited Mark's Gospel and forgot the story was there and added, added it on. Who knows? Uh, a lot of different opinions out there. I think all of those personally are ridiculous, uh, and for a few reasons. Number one, chapter 6, two chapters earlier, refers to this feeding miracle as a feeding of 5,000. Today's passage, 4,000. Second reason, chapter 6 occurred in a non-Gentile region. When Jesus fed 5,000 in the wilderness, it was in a non-Gentile region, whilst today the feeding of the 4,000 occurs in Decapolis, 
which is a Gentile region, a non-Jewish region. And all the people being fed today were Gentiles. Number three, the number of bread and fish compared to chapter six differs with today's passage. And the fourth reason, and this is really the nail in the coffin, why I feel like chapter eight isn't an accident. Jesus himself refers later in this chapter in verse 19 and 20, he refers to both the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. He actually describes those as two separate events. Um, And so having established that, it it can't be a mix-up. It can't be an accident. It wasn't the same event. Jesus himself describes it as two separate events, and that's how we need to receive it. And so having established that, we'll jump into today's passage. And verse 1 contains two phrases that I want us to point out. The first phrase confirms the location of today's event. The location where today's miracle takes place. Verse 1 begins by saying, in those days. In those days implies that this passage links with the one that preceded it. And the passage that precedes today's one occurred where? In Decapolis. So we know straight off the bat that this is a Gentile region. The second phrase of importance is, when again a great crowd had gathered. That phrase, when again a great crowd had gathered. And this adjective, great, for a great crowd, uh, it's not that word mega that we saw multiple times in Mark's gospel, um, but it's this word polu. And the last use of the adjective polu was actually found to describe the size of a crowd in chapter 6, where Jesus fed 5,000. It's a similar, you know, it's got similar details. There's a massive crowd, last time 5,000, this time 4,000. And if we include the women and children, today there were probably about 12,000 thousand people all up. The passage says 4,000, but traditionally when Jews record numbers uh, to, you know, count a population, usually they only count the males. Now, remember I said that in the preceding passage, uh, the people from the Decapolis, all these people had come to see Jesus. Ten cities, the population of ten cities, they were all following Jesus wherever he went. They watched him. They brought this deaf-mute man to him. They watched him heal this man. And then Jesus presumably must have gone on traveling. And they kept following him. 12,000 people following him. These guys wanted to be with Jesus. But why? How? Where did they hear about Jesus? How did they come to know who this man was? He's not a Gentile like them. He's a Jew. The reason I mentioned last week was because of that demoniac in chapter 5. Mr. Crazy, demon-possessed, naked man from chapter 5. The guy that Jesus cast a legion of demons out, he became commissioned as the first ever missionary to the Gentiles. And we saw that this formerly demon-possessed man that no one wanted anything to do with, he was faithful in obeying Jesus. Imagine one man changing the opinions of 12,000 people. One man being faithful to the gospel commission. His obedience resulting in the entire population of 10 different cities who are desperate to get a piece of Jesus. And they're so desperate that verse 2 and 3 show that they followed him into the wilderness. I know I kind of make fun of Mount Druid, I'll make fun of it again, because I live not far from Mount Druid. But imagine 
people living in the Sydney CBD and following an individual all the way out into the sticks, into Mount Druitt by foot. This was what was going on. 12,000 people that wanted a piece of Jesus. Verses 2 and 3 says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me three days, walking nonstop for three days. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from very far away. Three days of following, three days of not even eating because they're so blown away by who Jesus is and what he's doing. Now, one remarkable fact that I want to point out is that in today's passage, this is the first time that Jesus actually says that he has compassion on someone. Like there were mentions of Jesus, his compassion on people in previous passages, like in the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, in verse 34, it says that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. There is mention of compassion, but it's always been in the third person up until this point. In today's passage, it's the first time that the compassion of Jesus is described in the first person. Jesus himself saying, I have compassion on this people group. And his compassion, according to verses 1 and 2, stems from the fact that he's just watched these Gentile people. 12,000 people follow him nonstop for three days. That's commitment. They haven't even eaten for three days. Presumably because they were so in awe of everything that Jesus was accomplishing. But for whatever the reason, Jesus looks at these 12,000. He felt compassion on them. And it says that he wanted to feed them so they wouldn't pass out on the journey home. Because if they've walked three days away from home, it's going to take another three days to get back. So six days of no food, he didn't want them to pass out. Now, there are a few synonymous details uh, with what we saw in chapter 6. Same thing, it was in the wilderness. Um, but there are a few distinguishing features of today's passage. In chapter 6, it said that they sat on grass. Uh, no mention of grass in today's passage. It seems to be just dirt. And when I read that, it, it kind of reminded me, I don't know if you guys know Clint Eastwood. Does anyone know Clint Eastwood? Some of you guys do. The older generation, the younger generation probably don't know. Every cowboy movie had Clint Eastwood back in the day. And you'd have him like on a horse riding into town. And he'd have his hat lowered and it'd just be dirt everywhere. And it'd be like a tumbleweed just rolling by. Like one sad tumbleweed on its own. But that's kind of what I, what I picture in today's passage. It's in the desert. 4,000 Gentiles, and it's in the Gentile region. Chapter 6 was a Jewish region, predominantly with Jewish people. But today, it's all Gentiles. Now, in chapter 6, when it's all Jewish people, if you look at the details, it said that the Jews, or the apostles rather, in chapter 6, initiated the concern for the Jewish people. In chapter 6, it's the apostles that say, we need to give these guys some food. These guys are hungry. But in today's passage, the apostles are silent. And it's actually Jesus that initiates the compassion and the concern. The apostles don't seem concerned with the 4,000 in today's passage. And whether this is a racial dig 
at the Gentiles is up for debate. But I think it's interesting that Mark, who recorded chapter 6, would write a very similar account in chapter 8 and yet leave this detail out. In today's passage, it's not the apostles that show concern, but it's Jesus. He has compassion, he knows they're hungry, and he wants them fed. And the disciples answer him in verse 4. They say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, it's easy to read this and wonder, how can the disciples be so stupid? How dumb can you possibly be? You just witnessed two chapters earlier, 5,000 people be miraculously fed by Jesus. You saw Jesus out of nothing feed 5,000 people. Why are you having doubt that he can't feed 4,000? If he fed 5,000, why do you think 4,000 can't be provided for? And I I kind of reflected on that this week. Because it makes you wonder, was it a mistake then? Was chapter 8 recorded by accident? But again, I don't think it was. Because I don't think this statement from them, this question, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? I don't think that was a statement or a question of unbelief. But I think it was a a question of recognition. They recognized they couldn't do it. But in addition to that, and take this next part with a grain of sand, I think it was a question that demonstrated their racial prejudice and their disdain towards the Gentiles. It was a jab at these people, I think. Because you just saw Jesus feed 5,000. You shouldn't have any doubt in your mind that he can feed 4,000. But right now, they're in a Gentile region. A region that they consider to be unclean. And for the Jews traditionally, not only was it considered unclean, the land, but the people, the Gentile people, they considered to be unclean. By tradition, you don't associate with Gentiles if you're a faithful Jew. And you certainly don't eat with Gentiles if you're a faithful Jew. It was so frowned upon that if you walked into a Gentile region and you were coming back home, before you'd step over the border into Jewish territory, you had to dust your clothes off. Almost like as if the dust of Gentile region was dirty. Almost, it's like, They've got germs. And I think this is how the apostles felt. We don't eat with Jew, uh, Gentiles. We don't associate with Gentiles. Yes, we know that you fed 5,000 people just two chapters ago, but those were Jewish people in a Jewish region. We're in Gentile region. Things are different. But despite how the apostles feel, we learn that Jesus... Not just in today's passage, but preceding passages. Jesus has nothing but love and compassion for the Gentiles. And it's almost like a slap in the face for the apostles when Jesus feeds them. Because it's almost like he's saying, you know what, say what you will about the Gentiles, about their practices, about how you think they're you know, ceremonially unclean. But in the last two passages... We've seen that every time they witnessed God's power, 
What did they do? They worshipped the God of Israel. They interceded for their friends. They brought the death. They brought the mute. And they understood who Christ was. They wanted a piece of Christ. They were willing to walk three days into the wilderness with no food just to be with Jesus. Say what you will about the Gentiles, but compare that to the Jewish reaction. What did the Jews do when they saw Jesus heal people? They plotted his death. They wanted to kill him. The Gentiles glorified God. The Gentiles had other options. They had gods and goddesses galore. They had an endless pantheon of gods that they could have chosen to place their hope in. But when they see Christ, they do away with everything and they follow Jesus. And so despite how the apostles feel, Jesus says in verses 5 and 7, How many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground and he took seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he had oh, he said that these also should be set before them. So chapter 6 had five loaves, two fish. Today we have seven loaves and a couple of fish. Slightly more food. Still not close enough to feeding four, um, like 4,000, let alone the apostles. But Jesus, similarly to chapter 6, he treats the Gentiles exactly the same way he did to the Jews in chapter 6. He has them sit down. He breaks the bread. He gives thanks. He prays on their behalf. He blesses the fish as well. He calls on power from heaven to perform this miracle for the Gentiles exactly the same way he did for the Jews. And it was almost like as if it was a deliberate attempt on the part of Jesus to break this racial stigma that the Jews had towards the Gentiles. Because after he prays and blesses the food, he makes his apostles hand the food out to the Gentiles themselves. It's a very subtle way for Jesus to show the Jews and to the people there that Gentiles are not second-class citizens, they're not second-class believers, but both Jews and Gentiles are equally loved and equally objects of Jesus' compassion. Even verse 8, which says, And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. You know, in Mark 6, there were 12 baskets. But the basket in chapter 6, uh, it's a different word. That Mark uses. The word that Mark uses in chapter, chapter 6, it's a word for a coffin. And back then, the coffin would have just been like the size of a little lunchbox. But in today's passage, it's a basket that's more of like a wicker basket, big enough for an entire human to fit in. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul escapes from the city of Damascus, he climbs into one of these baskets. And so it's almost a subtle detail that for the Jews, it was a tiny basket. For the Gentiles, there were massive baskets of food left over, almost to show that, look, 
Gentiles, despite all the stigma that they receive from the perspective of Christ, he's not going to withhold anything from them because of their race, their ethnicity, or for, th- for their background. Christ was compassionate, loving, and is generously abundant to both Jew and Gentile. He treats the Gentiles to the same miracle that he did to the Jews. And then the passage concludes in verses 9 and 10, where he says, there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his people, and then he went to the district of Dalmanutha. He fed the Gentiles the same way he fed the Jews, and then he gets into a boat, and he crosses to the western side of Galilee, to the district of Dalmanutha, and then the passage ends. It's a very short one. And after men's conference ended, I hadn't finished this part of my sermon, and so I went and took my dog for a walk, and I was praying while I was walking, wondering what kind of an observation or application I should conclude today's sermon with. Uh, I thought I'd just keep it simple. And the observation I want to make is that God's compassion extends to all people everywhere. You know, whenever we think of a people group or a people that are subject to racism, we tend to categorize them as victims. And they are. Racism is it's a terrible evil. And so when we look to the Gentiles, given that they were the victims of ongoing racism, both inside and outside the church from the Jewish people and the Jewish Christians, it's easy to categorize and classify Gentiles as victims. But like I explained two weeks ago, there was really nothing innocent about the Gentiles. These were people who celebrated sexual immorality, idolatry, incest, to such a horrifying degree. If you ever read through Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul dedicates the entire of Romans chapter 1 just to slamming these Gentiles. Look how evil these Gentiles are. Look how filthy these Gentiles are. He doesn't do it to be racist because in chapter 2, he also attacks the Jews in the same way. He does it to show, look, Gentiles, evil Terrible people, and almost like he's waiting for the Jews to start applauding, he says to the Jewish Christians, you know, like, yeah, exactly the same. And he does it to show both need help. And so like I mentioned in previous weeks, yes, the racial prejudice of the Jews and even the Jewish Christians was wrong, but you can kind of understand where they were coming from. You can. Because if you put it in today's context, imagine if there was a people group where sleeping with children was a normal thing. Sleeping with multiple women was a normal thing. You wouldn't want your wife or your kids hanging around with them, would you? And so even for the apostles in today's passage, remember back in chapter 6, they've already witnessed the power of God. They know he's capable of feeding 5,000, so it shouldn't even be a question, can he feed 4,000? They know that Jesus can do it. And so when they ask, how can one feed these people with bread in this desolate place? It's not, a, not so much a question of where and how is this going to happen, but why? Why would you feed these people? These people are unclean. We're in a region 
that's unclean. These are people that worship other gods. They don't deserve it. They're filthy. Like who knows what kind of diseases they have. And this was how typically Jews felt about Gentiles. And whilst the apostles in today's passage might not have explicitly communicated their disdain, this is really how they felt deep down. And even after the ascension, if you read through the New Testament in Acts and Paul's letter to the Galatians, you find that in chapter 2, Paul exposes Peter, the apostle Peter, the rock on which Jesus builds his church. Paul exposes Peter. He calls him out. And he describes in his letter, it's, what a, what a, it's not a nice thing to do, but to write to a church and say, look how terrible Peter is. And he describes the hypocrisy and prejudice that Peter exercised towards Gentile Christians. He points out that Peter, whilst he did preach a gospel of grace, he told everyone salvation is by grace through faith, that everyone can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And once you're cleansed, you're forever clean. He describes that Peter might have gone around preaching that, but he didn't treat the Gentiles like that. Because there was a point in Peter's ministry where Gentiles were in the same building as him and he didn't want to eat with them. He might have told them you're cleansed, but he didn't treat them like as if they were cleansed. And so whilst the apostles and even Peter felt this way towards the Gentiles, even if they didn't communicate it externally, even if they felt this way on the inside about the Gentiles, or maybe you feel that way about certain people, despite how they felt on the inside, Christ on the inside felt nothing but compassion for them. And this compassion wasn't just, oh, poor people, I feel sorry for them. But the word is splankizomai in the Greek, and this word literally means from the very depths of your guts, like back then the Jews, like it, if it's something that you're very passionate about, they'd say it's from your bowels. Very weird, weird way to describe how you're passionate about something. From the very depths of my bowels, he had compassion on them. It signifies that in the very depths of Jesus' heart, he felt for these people. Christ had compassion on the Gentiles just as he did the Jews. Because Christ doesn't show impartiality. Or sorry, doesn't show partiality. He's impartial. He doesn't demonstrate bias based on culture, nationality. And he doesn't show bias based on how much you've sinned up until this point. And the reason I share this with you is because people, by default, I think we have a sense of bias built into us. Just by default, that's the way we are. Because we have trouble comprehending how good the gospel is. We have trouble believing that Christ does not hold anything against us. That if we repent, that we get to start again clean. And I think we have trouble believing it because we think it's too easy. It's too good to be true. Maybe not by culture, maybe not by nationality, but how I've lived up until this point. My sin... My secret sin, surely that would make God think twice about me. That even if he does accept me, 
that because of my sin, my secret sin, the sin that I will just, if people were to find about, I'd never be able to show my face at church or in public again. If God knows about that, yeah, he might accept me. But surely there must have been some sort of hesitance on his part before he accepted me. Why? Why would we think like that? Because from our perspective, I wouldn't accept me. I know how vile the very depths of my heart is. I wouldn't accept me, so why would someone else? And this was how the Jews felt about the Gentiles. Even though the Jews, you know, they said salvation is by grace, grace through faith, that it's a free gift, that it's for everyone, that the blood of Christ is the power to cleanse anyone from sin. Deep down, this is how they felt about the Gentiles. Because they looked at the lives that the Gentiles lived prior to receiving Christ. And they would have felt deep down, yeah, you've received grace. Yes, you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, but look how much grace you needed. Look at how much blood was required for you to be cleansed. He might have accepted you, but it would have been a reluctant acceptance. That's how they felt about the Gentiles. But you know what? I think that's sometimes how we feel about ourselves. That sometimes we think that God's acceptance of us. He has accepted us, but that acceptance was a reluctant one. That he was probably a little bit hesitant about me. But that's not what we find in today's passage. And that's not what we found in our series in Mark up until now. And that's not what we find in the gospel or the rest of the scriptures. For the Gentiles in the New Testament and for us today, no matter what we've done up until this point, Christ does not show partiality, does not show bias, does not show favoritism. He doesn't do it to the Gentiles and he doesn't do it to us. We find throughout the New Testament and to us today, he doesn't withhold grace, compassion or love from the Gentiles or to us even in the slightest. And this is important that we get rid of this notion that Christ is somehow hesitant about accepting us. Because if we kind of deceive ourselves into thinking that he might have, for just even a split second, had some hesitance, this becomes a foothold for Satan to sow sow, seeds of doubt in our heart. Because Satan loves this kind of thinking. He loves when we think, maybe Christ had second thoughts about me. He loves it when we think that Christ was hesitant because the moment we think Christ was hesitant, it makes us hesitant to throw ourselves upon him for mercy. And the more you think Christ was hesitant, the more you will focus on your inner secret sins, things that you might have done up until this point or still do that you're not proud of. And the greater focus we have on this, the more we deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin has greater power than the blood of Christ. And I will tell you, as a pastor, but also as an individual and a brother just like you, following Christ, that's simply not true. 
And the proof that it's not true, the proof that there was no hesitance on the part of Christ is the fact that he showed no hesitance in going to the cross. The cross is the ultimate demonstration from God that he had no hesitance. He doesn't withhold compassion or his love from us. The fact that he went to the cross with no hesitance shows that there was no doubt or second thoughts from him about saving us. Now, I don't know how you define what your identity is. When I was in youth ministry, it felt like social media for high school students defined their identity. How many people enjoyed their photos, their videos they uploaded, their stories, how many likes they got, how many followers they had. Maybe you define your identity by how many people like you or how popular you are or by how successful, financially stable you are. But these are all temporal identities. And if you place your faith in temporal identities, that will cause you to think that Christ is hesitant about you. But your identity was sealed by the blood of Christ as he went to the cross, and he went with no hesitance. And I just want to conclude with two proof texts from Scripture. I'm just going to read these two verses and close in prayer. But the first is Romans 5, 7 to 8, where the Apostle Paul writes, For one scarcely, or one will scarcely die for a righteous person. A person might die, if you're lucky, for a good guy. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I see no hesitance there. One more proof text. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay his life down for his friends. And that's the promise of the gospel. He's our king. He's our priest. He's our prophet. But the Bible also records that Christ sees us as our brother, and our friend. There is no hesitance on his part in accepting you. The only thing that's stopping you from being able to embrace Christ is you being hesitant to come to the throne room of God. So I encourage you guys to read through Mark chapter 8 again. Compare it to Mark chapter 6. Look how Christ treats Jews, 5,000 Jews, and look how Christ treats 4,000 Gentiles. Look at the impartiality that he has to both these people. Despite their backgrounds, despite their culture, despite their ethnicity, despite how they've lived up until this point, our Christ is a Christ that shows no hesitance. All we need to do is repent and place our hope in him. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the recording of today's passage as Mark feeds the 5,000, or 4,000 rather. Uh, Father, we thank you that Mark not only recorded the feeding of Jewish followers, but in today especially, that Mark records specific details to show that there is 
no bias, that Christ is impartial, that he receives all people everywhere, despite what walk of life they might come from, despite how they've lived their life, despite secret sin, that there are no second-class believers in God's kingdom, that for both Jew and Gentile, and for all of humanity, that we are saved by the same grace, given the same love, compassion, and mercy, saved by the same gospel, and the same Christ. Father, if there are any of us in this room that have been hesitant about throwing ourselves upon Christ, if there's anyone that's been questioning that maybe Christ has been hesitant about us, Father, help us look to your word and understand that Christ has no hesitance, that the only thing that we need to do is trust in his faithfulness and the promises of his gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.